0: Well, I was brought up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I went to church schools. I was a pathfinder. I loved going to summer camp. Later, I worked at summer camp, and I went through our academies. I have great memories of band trips and choir trips and temperance rallies and Bible conferences. I loved every bit of it. Now, I was baptized in elementary school, but in academy, that's when I gave my heart to Jesus. I was 15. Now, the college years were harder for me. It was during this time that my parents divorced and I saw the inconsistency and the prejudice within our church. It caused me to withdraw for a while. And I had to ask questions that I think a lot of young people have to ask. You know, is this where the Lord wants me? Is the Lord here, even with the hypocrisies? Was I just growing up in some enchanted Seventh-day Adventist bubble Well, you know, God is good, and he knew how to answer every one of those questions. So when the time came for me to marry my college sweetheart, we both knew we wanted a Christian home, and we wanted a Seventh-day Adventist home. Even with our problems, I knew the Lord had anointed this church, and we had been given a higher calling. But now with that said, six months before my wedding day, I realized I was pregnant. I was embarrassed to death. How can I face my church family? How can I break my grandmother's heart? And to make matters worse, I had a series of x-rays on my lower spine for work. And I panicked. I called every physician I knew in the area that I worked with, and they all advised me, abort the pregnancy, abort. It was never referred to as your baby or your child. So I called the abortion clinic I found out how far along I had to be how much it would cost and I set a date now you know I must have been in a panic I don't remember my husband's response at all when I told him when I went to the clinic I talked to a counselor first she wasn't a Christian just a sympathetic ear and she assured me at that time it was just a fuzzball now I was a nurse and I had taken enough anatomy and physiology but I didn't think to question that. It was not a fuzzball at that time. Now, my life must have been in a panic blur for me to consider having this procedure without any anesthesia. I look back now and I can't even imagine where my mind was. I do know that I was scared to death and the procedure was a nightmare. The pain was so bad, I lost consciousness. Now, when it's all over, I felt a sense of relief, but it was short-lived and very deceptive. The fact of what I had done was harrowing, so harrowing that it just about destroyed me. I hated myself and this man that I loved with all my heart and wanted to spend the rest of my life with, all of a sudden became repulsive to me. I had all kinds of anger towards him. You see, the topic of abortion had never been a part of my life. I had no clue what the effect of making that decision would have on my life. Nobody talked about it. Now I've taught my children since they were young that panic kills. The panic is the worst thing you can do because you're more likely to do something stupid and get yourself killed or someone else. Think it out, keep your head. Now I worked in a regional burn unit for a while and we used to get some pretty nasty burns and every once in a while we would admit a victim who um, had actually run into a fire because they panicked instead of away from it. Well, when I found out I was pregnant, that's what I did. I panicked, and I ran into the fire, and someone was killed. Now, after we'd been married for a short while, I remember getting up one night and getting the scissors and cutting all my hair off, stubs. There was to be nothing lovely about me. I was constantly punishing myself. I would sit on the toilet and I would take a razor and I would run that razor up my arm. It was like I needed to feel that pain. On the inside, I was full of pain, but on the outside, I was numb. When I became pregnant the second time after we were married, I was already convinced that I was unfit and a terrible person. There was no way I could be a mother and I had a second abortion. I called the clinic, I lied about how far along I was, and I made the appointment. No emotions this time, no fear or crying. I went in, listened to the little speech, and got it over with. Now, just as that baby had been taken mercilessly from the security of my womb, my identity was being stripped mercilessly from my soul. Now, by this time, bulimia had complete control over me. Shame destroys, and I was being destroyed. It digs a big, ugly, deep hole that you try to stuff just to deal with the pain. I would stuff food down my throat till I could not swallow. And then there would become this enormous upheaval. I was getting it all out. What I needed was a redeeming purge from a Savior who not only could forgive, but to heal and restore me. Amen. So many of the joys of being a new bride were taken from me. I couldn't sleep at night, and I fought depression constantly. I finally broke down and went to a therapist, and she gave me sleeping pills, and she gave me antidepressants, but never once did she take a personal history to see what it was causing me to have this struggle. Well, I eventually gave up on that. My husband and I, we went to a marriage counselor who promptly told us she didn't think our marriage could be saved. Now, it was terrible because we wanted our marriage to work. We loved each other. We just had no clue as to what was going on. She never asked if we'd ever had a miscarriage, stillbirth, even abortion, issues that can cause all kinds of unresolved um, issues, emotions, and play havoc in a relationship. She never brought that up, and we certainly didn't bring it up. I remember one night, I scraped the courage up to call a hotline for post-abortive women. She answered the phone and I told her my story. The first thing out of that woman's mouth was, well, you know abortion's murder, don't you? Now, I was calling her for help. I hung up and I wanted to vomit and I wanted to run. Well, now soon after that, one of the girls I worked with in the unit asked David and me if we'd like to go to church with her the next Sunday. And we did. Well, wouldn't you know it? The sermon was on abortion. Now this preacher was very loud and animated and he ranted and raved about the sin of abortion. And finally he came to the loud conclusion that the Lord would not and could not forgive a woman who'd had an abortion. Well, (laughs) quickly he recanted those words But to me, sitting in that congregation, he confirmed all the reasons I had for hating myself. And I just sank deeper into my pit of shame. Now, those events shut and locked the door for me to talk about that for six years. During those six years, I was on survival mode. The bulimia continued. I lived in secrecy. I had food hidden everywhere. And I spent money we didn't have You have to remember, my husband was a dental student. We were, you know, poor. Well, right when I hit rock bottom, my sister suggested that I go see a friend of hers. And I did. This woman was very, very kind to me. And she took me back to the feet of Jesus. I was so broken, I didn't know how to pray. So I would repeat after her. She would pray and I would pray. And she gained my confidence so much that I decided to trust her with my deepest hurt and shame. I told her about my abortions. Now, she was very serious with me, but she didn't do anything to cause me to lose hope. And with her help, I was able to confess that sin. I was able to confess the sin of my abortions. Now, I will say that I didn't know or realize at the time that dealing with those abortions on another level was critical there was more work that needed to be done God is good to forgive us of our sins but often those sins come with pain and grief and consequences that need to be dealt with so often the issue is tucked away or hidden and then those unresolved emotions come to the surface Antonette and I have spoke to so many post-abortive women one in particular stands out in my mind and she said. If I am forgiven, why do I still hurt? They don't realize there's more work. There's more issues that need to be dealt with. Now, it affected my life for another 21 years, and it wasn't until I had met Antoinette that I was to realize this. But before I continue from this point, I want Antoinette to come up and introduce herself and tell you a little bit about Mafgia and tell
1: you her story. Uh, In 1981, uh, my mother was in a very destructive marriage. Uh, She was married to a man who was addicted to drugs and alcohol. um, And she realized that she was pregnant. She had decided she did not want to bring a baby into that marriage. Um, And her husband, my biological father, had made the home a very scary, very frightening place. And so she wasn't a believer, and she decided she was originally from California, and back in 1981, abortions were free in California at that time. And so she decided, I'm going back to California. I'm going to have my abortion. I'm going to be done with this marriage, and that's it. So she decided to secretly give money to a friend of hers. Um, She couldn't actually bring money into the home, so she secretly gave money to a friend. And she was going to stockpile it until she had enough to get on a plane or a train and come back to California. Um, When she went to her friend and said, I'm ready to go, I know I have enough, her friend said, you don't have any money. I spent all of it. She had no way out. She had nowhere to go. My biological father cut out an ad in the paper. There was an ad in the paper that said, hey, I'm alive, voice of the preborn," And he set it on the coffee table because he knew she had been experiencing morning sickness. And it wasn't for a, an abortion clinic. It was actually a crisis pregnancy center. She was in Georgia at that time. So she made an appointment. She went in, and they confirmed she was pregnant. She said, will you help me have an abortion? They said, no, but would you please come back for some counseling? And when she went back for counseling, There was a magazine. In 1965, Life magazine um, took pictures of the baby in utero. It was the first time the world had ever seen the baby in utero, and it showed stages, essentially from conception to birth. And when she saw those pictures, she was absolutely floored. She had never seen fingers and toes, and she read about brain waves and movement. She had no idea that the baby inside her was alive. And as she read that, the Holy Spirit just fell on her, and she became convinced no matter what happens. I'm going through it with my baby. Well, that was my mom, and the baby was me. I've, we've ministered alongside each other often, speaking on this issue. Um, I wasn't raised Adventist, however. I was raised as a Sunday keeper, and back in 2007, came across information that talked about the Sabbath and became convinced I need to start keeping the Sabbath. Um, I began attending a Seventh-day Adventist church back in 2009, and um, eventually came across the church's views on this issue, and when I did, um, I was really quite um, saddened, saddened and really burdened um, because of our silence, but also, as Diane has mentioned, because of um, the very large inconsistencies in our position. Um, uh, When I spoke to people about it, no one quite had an answer. I was in law school at the time, and a visiting couple at the church that I was attending there said, you know what? You don't not join. You join, and you seek to change it. You seek to make it whole. And At the time, I sort of disregarded that statement, but as I thought about it, um, I became convinced this is my church. If I, if I can't join this church, there's nowhere else for me to go. And so um, in 2010 of September, I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And in January, uh, well, I should say springish ish 2011, um, the Moffagia began. And in December of 2011, I met Diane Wagner at GYC. that the Lord
0: is leading in each one of our lives. I've often said, the Lord can work all things together for the good, whether you're a victim or whether it's a consequence from your own decision. The Lord can make everything work together for the good. Well, the abortion was supposed to be a solution to a crisis but instead it created a larger than life crisis According to abortion advocates, the post abortive woman should be feeling fine about her decision. After all, she's exercising her right. It is her body. But is it really? If she doesn't feel fine, it's because something was wrong with her before the abortion. If there's emotional instability after the abortion, it's because she was unstable prior to the abortion. Some pro-choice activists claim that it is our religiosity or our religion that causes us to have a hard time after choosing to have an abortion. In the late 1800s, thousands of women were incarcerated due to their hysteria, hysterical behavior. Leaders of the French Enlightenment also held and encouraged the view that it was the dangers of religion that caused this behavior. Now even though there was significant evidence that this hysteria was the result of sexual abuse at a young age, there was no political or social support for further investigation, and thousands of women remained incarcerated. Their hysterical behavior was in response to a trauma, but instead of validating that trauma, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Psychiatrists and society preferred to think that the fundamental problem lay in the fragile nature of women themselves. The link between hysteria and sexual assault wasn't seriously explored until the 1970s, and it was only in the 1980s that the traumatic nature of sexual assault and the resulting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder were even universally accepted. Now this... Oh, I'm so glad that guy told me how to go backwards. (laughs) This same pattern of behavior was seen in, um, uh, towards trauma in wartime and under conditions of unremitting exposure to horrors of trench warfare during World War I. Men began breaking down in shocking numbers. Men began to produce symptoms that were like the uh, hysteria in women. They screamed and they wept. They, compa- they became unresponsive. Now, the military authorities didn't want this to get out. They didn't want it to have a negative impact on society. They insisted that true men, the military authorities, as far as these um, symptoms of hysteria in the men, didn't want the society to know about it. They insisted that true men, noble men, would never succumb to terror, but find glory in this challenge it was declared that men who were susceptible to the hysteria of women had defects in their masculinity. Once again, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Now interest in the long-term effects of battle trauma didn't take place until the 1970s, and it was when our Vietnam vets came back and they shared their stories. And by sharing their stories, they validated their trauma. Now it was during this time that the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder that we have today was developed. Well, sadly, many women today are locked in their own private asylums due to the trauma of abortion. And once again, there is little political and social support. Prior to the 1960s, investigations on the effects of abortion concluded almost without exception that abortion inevitably causes trauma, posing a severe threat to psychological health. By the late 1950s, population control advocates set their sights on regulating birth control and abortion. Major population control donors, like the Rockefeller Foundation, made new research dollars available to prove the benign nature of abortion. Now, I just went silent, okay? Can you, somebody raise a hand if you can't hear me, because, let's see. By the late 1960s, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the American Psychological Association all reversed their prior positions in opposition to abortion. Cited this new body of evidence that purported to prove abortion benign, and actively supported the repeal of anti-abortion laws. Since the Roe v. Wade decision in 73, their commitment has not wavered. Their reasoning began to suggest that the negatively affected women were those who were psychologically fragile prior to their abortions. Once again, instead of validating the trauma, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Now, A lot happened in the 1970s. In the late 70s, a few women who had had physical or emotional problems after abortion started banding together. And in 1982, the group Women Exploited by Abortion was established. This had a national impact by offering group and peer counseling to post-abortive. Within a year, Webba had chapters in every state with thousands of members. Now at the same time, psychologists started seeing a trend in their patients. Women who had a history of abortion were also demonstrating clusters of symptoms that um, fit the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was Vincent Rue who first defined the um, post-abortion syndrome as a variant of post-traumatic stress disorder Now, in the mid-80s, the Elliott Institute was established by David Reardon and he began his research on the effects of abortion. Now, even though the American Medical Association calls it a myth and the American Psychiatric Association attempted to squelch any recognition of post-abortion trauma, the evidence that a traumatic nature, yeah, the evidence about the traumatic nature of abortion (coughs) continues to accumulate. According to the Elliott Institute, 61% of women feel guilty for what they've done. 52% deal with depression. Still others deal with anger and sorrow. There's grief and bitterness. 52% say they've suffered regret. They endured anguish. There's remorse, despair, shame, unworthiness. There's loneliness, hopelessness, helplessness. 57% felt self-condemnation and confusion. There's anxiety, self-hatred. 54% were unforgiving of themselves. They've experienced emptiness and uncontrollable weeping and a loss of dignity. Now you can see why so many end up with drug and alcohol problems, career problems, troubles with relationships, sexual dysfunction, self-punishing behavior like cutting, eating disorders, promiscuity, suicidal thoughts, and repeat abortions. Now, the percentages I just shared with you are actually low. Delayed reaction and refusing to participate in studies are two factors that affect these numbers. In the Elliott survey, over 60% of the women surveyed reported that there was a period of time during which they would not have reported any negative feelings about their abortion. They reported that the average time before they even recognized they had negative reactions was slightly over five years. Women involved in post-abortion programs typically report that it takes an average of eight to ten years before they begin to confront and deal with their post-abortion problems. Delayed reactions to abortion is one of the major reasons why abortion trauma is so poorly understood. In longitudinal studies, 50 to 60% of women who have had an abortion will conceal their abortions from interviews. 60% of women will initially who initially consent to participate in short-term studies change their minds and refuse. Dr. Julius Vogel a psychiatrist and obstetrician, who has performed more than 20,000 abortions, insist that every woman, whatever her age, background, sexuality, has a trauma at destroying a pregnancy. A level of humanness is touched. This is a part of her own life. When she destroys a pregnancy, she is destroying herself. There is no way it can be innocuous. A Los Angeles Times poll found that 74% of women who admitted to having had an abortion stated they believe abortion is morally wrong. Another study showed that 70% believe abortion involves the killing of a human life, violating their own moral standard. Now remember this only represents those who are willing to participate in a study. It's very likely those numbers could be higher, but moral dilemmas by their very nature, involve emotional and intellectual conflict over the options. And this conflict for many produces a powerful sense of crisis, leaving women completely overwhelmed. And these women oftentimes will rush into an abortion decision without ever examining the full range of her beliefs, her needs, or her feelings. Now another very sobering aspect of this is that those who are in a state of crisis are more vulnerable to outside influences. This state of crisis, especially when it involves a moral dilemma, causes people to have less trust in their own opinions and ability to make a decision. And that leads them into this heightened psychological accessibility, which, they become more reliant on the opinion of others, especially authority figures. Now it's a pretty sobering situation, but I will tell you, I wish one of the docs that I had called would have said, Diane, don't decide anything till you come see me. Let's talk about it. Now you know that might not have changed a thing, (laughs) but it might have changed everything. What an incredible opportunity for you guys to minister. Mrs. White refers to the physician as an educator, one who stands as a guardian of both physical and moral health. Physicians have the opportunity to win a place in people's confidence and affection like is granted to but a few others. Not even to the minister of the gospel are committed possibilities so great or an influence so far reaching. Post-abortive women are seeking recovery programs at a record rate, and I think that speaks for itself. I want to encourage each one of you to seek out your local crisis pregnancy center. Get acquainted with them. Find out what they have to offer. Support them. Often they have Bible studies for the post-abortive women. It would be good for you to know that. Look into the retreats for post-abortive women and men. If you do this, the Lord will send people your way. Having the attitude that the decisions about life must be made in the context of a fallen world is not acceptable. Heaven begins now or not at all. The principles of heaven must govern every aspect of our lives regardless of the magnitude of the crisis. We hold the healing balm of Gilead in our hands, and I'm afraid we're not even using it. Antoinette and I have met many hurting Seventh-day Adventists post-abortive men and women. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, because of our faith, we want the nations around us to see our God work. But we cannot encourage others to trust God if we don't ourselves, can we? It was not until I attended a retreat for the post-abortive that I understood the incredible need to have the trauma validated, deal with my denial, acknowledge my loss, and grieve. I had to confront my forbidden grief before I could finally forgive me. The few people that I had confided in through the years did not know the importance of encouraging me to get help. So I just want to encourage you to look into this and prayerfully ask the Lord how he wants you to minister, especially now that you know my story.
1: Acts 26.18 tells us, I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why are we called to share what is true? So that we can be a vessel through which the captive is set free. We share what is true so that by us, through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are dying can breathe new life. Our Savior raises the dead to life, not just for eternity, but in the moments, right here, right now, moment by moment. If we do not know what is true, or if despite knowing what is true, we waver, we gloss over it, we fail to raise the standard, how will those who are dying be brought to life? I once read a line from a book called Redeeming Love, and it said, would you have her hang on her cross forever? The magnitude of that question is striking. There is a fundamental truth that unites every single one of us. Someone is going to hang on your cross, and there are only two choices. It's either you or it's your redeemer. Either we will yield our lives in humility to the Lord, accepting his sacrifice, or we ourselves will hang on our own cross and we will spend the rest of our lives grasping and scraping, trying to make penance, trying to be enough. We cannot pay that debt, and you know what? Neither can the post-abortive woman, neither can the post-abortive man. Their sin separates them just as profoundly as our sin separates us. What we must not fail to understand is that none of us will ever find peace apart from the cross. So what, what is the significance here? If we excuse sin, if we refuse to call it by its rightful name, if we trivialize it, we, you and I, stand as a barrier to someone else finding redemption. We literally stand as a barrier for the very person who so desperately wants to be redeemed. Do we need to be forgiven for something that isn't sin? No, not at all. If we don't point her to the light, who is going to? Will we embrace our calling as individuals and as a church to be instruments through which the captive is set free? The tragedy and devastation in Diane's story, remarkable, courageous woman to get up here and speak with you. The tragedy and devastation of her story is not unique to her story. As she shared, women have shared uh, unbelievable um, stories of condemnation and pain that they themselves have experienced. Saying things like, you know, the enemy taunts me with condemnation like, the reason my children don't believe in Jesus is because I had an abortion. Please allow the weight of that condemnation to sink into you the reason your children don't believe in Jesus is because you had an abortion. What is she going to do? How is she going to make that right? How is she going to turn back the hands of time so that she can be forgiven and set free? There is nothing that woman can do. She is literally up against a condemnation that she cannot escape. And consider the implications of that condemnation. The implication isn't just that, you know what, the Lord is not for you because you had an abortion. The implication of that condemnation is that the Lord is not for you and he is set against you. He is literally working against you. That comes straight from the enemy. What is she going to do? Where is she going to turn? Well, she's not going to turn to the Lord. She's not going to turn to the one who she also believes condemns her. And so what does she do? Well, she harms herself. She cuts herself, she purges, she chases idols and lovers just like you and me, just like we do, desperate to be made whole. And the question that faces us is, ladies and gentlemen, who is going to tell her the life-giving grace-filled truth that she has been redeemed? That's you, that's me, that's us, it's we as individuals, it's, it's us as a church we have a calling we literally have a calling on our lives to be conduits through which the captive is set free if we will do this if we will take up our duty if we will embrace this calling we will watch as we will watch as our men and women are set free daughters sisters wives mothers fathers husbands sons individuals families marriages communities restored Will we embrace our calling? Will we embrace our duty to be a conduit through which the redemptive grace of the Lord can flow? My prayer is that our answer would be a resounding yes. The first step in embracing this duty, we have got to come to a right understanding of what was lost. And not just a right understanding, but an acceptance and acknowledgement. The post-abortive woman is living with a pain that is staggering. And in order to reach her there, we have got to come to a right understanding of what she lost, an honest acknowledgement of what was lost. She's not mourning the loss of a clump of cells. She's mourning the loss of a human being. If our response to her pain, to her past, to her brokenness, to her despair, is to dehumanize the unborn child or to trivialize the abortive act, We will not point her to the light. We will point her away from it. If we are going to reach her, we must honestly acknowledge what she lost, a child made in the image of the Lord. Our value was established at creation, and it was fortified at the cross forevermore. The Lord as creator is fundamental to our purpose, our value, and our destiny. In Psalm 95.6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. In Isaiah 45.18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In Isaiah 64.8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Our value has been established through scripture. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This is the Lord talking According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. In Genesis 9, 5b through 6, From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he has made man. In Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. My, my, um, what's unfortunate about scriptures like this is I think we've really lost the magnitude of what is being said. This is not a trite saying that we slap on the side of a coffee mug. This is the God of creation. Oh, excuse me, this is David talking about the God of creation. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We are not merely human beings. We are human beings created in the image of the Lord. We are creatures who possess intrinsic value and eternal significance. It is the Lord that causes the sperm and egg to fertilize. It is the Lord that causes the zygote to form. It is the Lord that causes the embryo to develop. In the Psalms, David spoke of the value of the unborn, even while he was yet unformed and forming. David is not speaking metaphorically here. He is speaking quite literally about the care with which the Lord crafted his being. When was he unformed? At conception, at fertilization, at his very beginning. Throughout the entirety of scripture, the value of all life, born and unborn, is proclaimed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Our creator declared the value that man was made in his image, and that his intrinsic value was fortified forevermore through the cross. The message of the Bible and of our church is not simply that Jesus died, but he died for those he created. Being fearfully and wonderfully made doesn't apply to David alone. It applies to each and every human being. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this slide. This is called the pale blue dot. And I'm not sure if you can see this pale blue dot, but it goes to prove the point. Um, This is a picture of Earth taken by a satellite from millions of miles away back in 1990. Everyone who has ever existed has lived on this dot. You, me, all of us. As Carl Sagan noted, we are specks of dust living on a speck of dust. And yet the creator has said, you are valuable You speck of dust, living on a speck of dust, because I say so. And I put you on earth with purpose, with destiny, that no one and nothing can take away. We bear intrinsic value and eternal significance because we are made in the image of the Lord. And these characteristics are so fundamental to who we are that they cannot and will not ever be diminished or destroyed. If we are going to claim that we are not intrinsically valuable from conception, we must be willing to accept the implications of that claim. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the very beginning, then there is nothing to instill intrinsic value in us at any point thereafter. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the very beginning, any attainment of value is solely based on what I do, what I achieve, what I become. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the very beginning, then any value later attributed to us is based on what we have done. It's gained through some means other than being created in the image of the Lord. Please don't miss that. To deny intrinsic value at the beginning means that any value we possess has been gained through our own selves. Isn't that the very antithesis of Scripture? The unequivocal truth, unequivocal truth, is that we are valuable solely because we are made in the image of the Lord. That and that alone gives us value. That is a humbling statement. But if we will live in that statement, if we will bow in humility before that truth, we will truly stand in glory. Now, someone might be tempted to say to make the argument that the word abortion is not found in Scripture or inspiration, because those two and say those two sources are silent on it. That is a true statement. The word abortion is not found in Scripture and it's not found in inspiration. I have two points in response to that argument. The first is this incredible quote by E. G. White: "Quotation, if you have given offense to your friend or neighbor, you are to acknowledge your wrong, and it is his duty freely to forgive you." Then you are to seek the forgiveness of God because the brother you have wounded is the property of God and in injuring him you have sinned against your creator and redeemer. Is she making a statement about the value of the human being? The second point is a question. Scott Klusendorf with the Life Training Institute has asked this question. Is our position as individuals and as a church that anything that is not, that the Bible, excuse me, is it our position as individuals and as a church that the Bible condones everything it does not explicitly condemn? Think about that for a moment. Couldn't we think of quite a, few, quite a few sins and injustices that the Bible does not explicitly mention and yet still grieve the Father's heart? Mr. Klusendorf has used examples of lynchings based on race or gender. I think we can all agree those are wrong, and yet the Bible does not specifically mention them. Does that make them permissible? No. Are we not called to use scripture to interpret itself? It is evident that scripture proclaims the value of the human being. However, in all of scripture, there is not a single verse or principle that explicitly or implicitly states that an individual may end the life of their unborn child. I really appreciate this quotation. Science teaches that human life begins at conception. If it is also true that it is affirmed by religion, it does not for that reason cease to be a strictly scientific truth. Abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being or it doesn't. It can be one or it can be the other, but it cannot be both. As my friends at Justice For All have said, before we can kill any living thing, we must first determine what it is. I've had the opportunity to gain incredible insight and understanding and dialoguing with friends of mine at this organization called Justice For All. And they brought up several key points in the defense of the unborn that I'd like to share now. The first is called a send, "excuse me" 10 second defense. Um, Steve Wagner at this organization uh, created this. If the unborn is growing, she must be alive. If she has human parents, She must be human, and living human beings, like you and I, are valuable, aren't they? Before we kill any living thing, we have to first determine what it is. The second point is this definition for life. Um, Scientists generally agree that all things that are alive exhibit three characteristics. Irritability, which is reaction to stimuli, metabolism, converting food to energy, and cellular reproduction, growth. The unborn exhibits all three. The third point, the unborn is a unique human being, not a part of another human being, its own unique genetic entity. From the moment of conception, a unique genetically distinct human entity comes into existence. Every scrap of genetic material that you possess right now, you possessed then. You were simply at a different stage of development Nothing has been added to you since the moment of conception to make you any more human. You are now what you were then. That's phenomenal. You're just at a different stage of development. Incidentally, the term fetus, when you hear the term fetus, it doesn't mean we're talking about a different organism. We're talking about a stage of development, unborn, in the womb. It's just a Latin word and it means little person, actually. So we know that the unborn is a human being. But the next objection might be, well, the unborn is not really a person. Um, Philosopher Stephen Schwartz and uh, Scott Klusendorf as well has expanded on this, um, came up with four differences, uh, boiled it down to basically four differences that exist between us and the unborn. Um, They are size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Uh, Mr. Klusendorf has come up with SLED. That's a handy little acronym. Size, it is true the unborn is smaller than we are. Does that mean the unborn is less valuable? A two year old is smaller than a 12 year old. Is the two year old less valuable? Um, level of development, it is true, undeniably, that the unborn is less developed. Um, in fact, there, one of the examples Mr. Klusendorf has used is um, you don't reach your intellectual peak till your mid 40s. So think about that. Does that mean everyone who is 40 and older is more valuable than everyone who is 40 and younger because we haven't reached the same intellectual peak? If we're using level of development as the gauge for what is valuable. Environment, Um, it's true that the unborn is in the womb, but do you actually gain or lose value based on your location? Is that what determines value? What about degree of dependency? The unborn is extremely dependent but we can think of newborns or toddlers that are also extremely dependent on someone else. Does it mean they are actually less valuable? The reality is that all that is required for the unborn from conception is the proper environment and the proper nutrition. And they'll be born, and they'll become like you and me. Actually, that's all that we require as well is the proper environment and proper nutrition. Um, Incidentally, the word... uh, Brefos in the Greek. It is the same for the unborn and the born. If you uh, studied it in the New Testament, uh, when they are talking about a baby in utero and they're talking about an infant, a newborn, they use the same word to describe both. There is no distinction uh, between levels levels of value. They're both referred to in the same way. We come back to um, something that we all need to contend with. Abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being or it doesn't. It can be one or it can be the other, but it can't be both. Now, very likely, someone is thinking, um, you know, I agree with you or you're making some good points, but what about our right to choose and to choose freely? Do we possess the freedom of choice? Absolutely. However, do we also have a duty to speak out against those choices that are contrary to Scripture? Just as our... Do we not speak out against adultery, lying, stealing, eating meat even? How then can we stay silent on the issue of abortion? Just as our stance on adultery, stealing, and lying, it doesn't remove an individual's free will to engage in those acts, so too, speaking about the abortion issue, it does not remove an individual's free will to engage in that act. I want you to consider this, the difference here. The first statement says abortion is wrong, and I will speak every truth I can to persuade you that abortion is wrong. Versus, abortion is a tragic dilemma of human fallenness, and whether you choose to have an abortion that's ending the life of your child, or whether you choose against abortion thus protecting the life of your child, both decisions are morally acceptable. Both of these statements preserve freedom of choice. By making either statement, Am I removing the individual's free will? No. But what is the difference? The difference is the direction in which the individual is led. With the first statement, she is led, she or he is led to the light. With the second statement, they are led away from it. If we acknowledge our sin, it will be forgiven. But if we hide it, if we trivialize it, what is left to cover us what if as diane mentioned what if just one doctor just one had had the courage to speak to her of her value and the value of her child remember acts 2618 I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What if just one doctor had had been willing to speak to Diane about the true unchanging value of her life and of her child? Do you know, dear woman, that you and your child were crafted with infinite love and design by the creator of the universe? Do you know, dear daughter, that you both have a purpose and destiny that you alone can fill? Do you understand that the Lord brought you into existence? Whereas before you did not exist, now you do exist and it's come by the hand of the Lord. Do you understand that the Lord brought this child into existence, whereas before your child did not exist, and now he or she exists by the hand of the Lord? What if just one doctor had had the courage to speak to her in boldness and love? How might history have been different? Her life, her marriage, her child, her family, her community, it is by the grace of the Lord This woman is one of the most remarkable creatures I have ever encountered, and it is by the grace of the Lord that she is a testament to the redeeming love and just redemption that, that Calvary brings. But ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake, there are millions upon millions of women who are just like her, and they are treading water, they are barely surviving, they are desperate to believe in the dark watches of the night that his grace really is sufficient for them. Why? Would we hesitate to be the voice that can speak light into that darkness? Proverbs 3 5 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. What if just one doctor had had the courage to rest in the Lord's understanding rather than his or her own? We look at those who believe in evolution and we marvel that they would not acknowledge the Lord as sovereign creator. We are amazed that they would choose to exalt man and man's wisdom, man's understanding as the measure of all things until we're faced with an issue like abortion, until we're faced with potential complications that might result from a series of x-rays, until we're faced with embarrassment of a pregnancy that no one wanted or planned for. Is it possible that though some of us claim to believe in the Lord and his sovereignty, we are really more comfortable when man and man's wisdom and man's understanding is the measure of all things. The difference between my story and Diane's story, people believed not just in my value, but in the value of my mother. Through their intercession, through their pleading, through their willingness to embrace a woman in crisis, my life was spared. But it wasn't just my life that they valued. They valued her life. They valued her future. They valued her spiritual soundness. For our sakes, they dared to go to those uncomfortable places. They didn't foresee that 30 years later, my life would be used to intercede in the life of another. They didn't foresee that 30 years later, I would meet a remarkable, amazing woman Who was dying inside but who was just waiting to be set free this is what we have the opportunity to do as individuals and as a church to intercede not just for the life of the child not just for the life of the mother but for both to intercede not just for the physical life but for the spiritual life I love this slide the cross Where devastation and wreckage meet hope, where we breathe the free air of redemption, where dry bones live. This is the cross. This is life eternal. This is what we have the opportunity to offer by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, but by whom and through whom we are made whole. For the post-abortive woman, honoring the sanctity of life, honoring the value of her life and the life of her child, it is not a condemnation of her. Honoring the sanctity of life invites her to acknowledge this truth, that she is intrinsically valuable, that her child is intrinsically valuable. And though she has done what cannot be undone, just like every single one of us have done a thing that cannot be undone, There is a Savior that waits, offering joy, hope, freedom, inexpressible. If we refuse to lead women to the light on this issue, whether by our silence or by our indifference, we have hindered and we continue to hinder countless women in their quest for forgiveness. Through us, As individuals through us as a church the Lord is literally extending his hand he's extending his hand to women who have experienced the tragedy of abortion and not just women to men the question is are we willing to be conduits of his redemptive grace will we embrace our calling will we take up our duty to boldly proclaim that people our people have been wonderfully gloriously redeemed Our answer must be yes. We're not redeemed because we never sinned. We're not redeemed because we've done nothing wrong. We're not redeemed because we've always been obedient. We're redeemed because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And all we need to know is the answer to that question, have I been redeemed? As one who believes in the Son of God Almighty, who surrendered their lives, who's accepted his free gift of forgiveness, our answer can be praise the Lord, yes. Yes. The story of the cross is the story of redemption. The person who struggles with pride is just as guilty as a woman who's had an abortion. The person who indulges in anger is just as guilty as the woman who's had an abortion. The person who secretly covets is just as guilty as the woman who's had an abortion. Moreover, the men who stood aside while wives and daughters and sisters and girlfriends had their abortions alone, they are just as guilty as the women who engaged in the act. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet, when the Father looks on me, when he looks on a believer, he sees his son's righteousness, his son's perfection. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told that for the joy that was set before him, our Savior endured the cross. That joy was you, and it was me. He foresaw our brokenness. He foresaw our pain. He foresaw our need. And he said, I am stretching out my arms, and for you, beloved child, I will not come down. He foresaw our need, and then he anticipated our redemption. He anticipated our reconciliation to himself. He anticipated our recreation as we would come to experience the transforming power of his redemptive grace through us. He is telling a story that the world, broken, pained, despairing, desperately needs to hear. Romans 8, 28, and 29 say, All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew he predestined to conform to the image of his son. All things work together for good. All things. This isn't just sugar and sweetness. All the nice things you've done will work together for good. And it isn't just something to make me feel good about myself when something is done to me. All things work together for good. There is no qualifier. All things, my mistakes, my past, my fumblings, my failures. Our Lord is sovereign. There is a reason he's promised to restore what the locusts have eaten. There is a reason he's promised to give beauty for ashes. He is sovereign over it all, and he is using, has used, and will use it all to conform us to the image of his son. Are we to live a life of obedience? Absolutely. But are we called to walk in condemnation and shame and despair? A thousand times, no. This is what we have the opportunity to offer to women and men who desperately need it. Listen to Diane's story this remarkable woman who has walked through the fire and she has come out vibrant and whole and free. And what the enemy intended for destruction, she is taking and sticking right back in his face because every single time she stands up and shares her story in any capacity, the Lord declares victory. Listen to my story as one who is literally rescued from the jaws of death. Listen and choose life. It's our time. Let me pray very briefly. Father, thank you so much for these people. I thank you for their willingness to come and give up an hour of their afternoon. I ask, Lord, that anything that was not from you, you would cause to fall away. But, Father, everything that was spoken that is true, I ask that you would cause it to resound in the hearts and minds of these people and that we truly would be conduits of your redemptive grace Lord, for people who so desperately need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen. Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.